1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, get you up to speed. Last week, we asked the question, what are the essentials for a happy, healthy, and thriving church family? That's what Paul is addressing here in his clo- the closing chapter of this letter. And basically, we looked at two roles that uh, are to be prioritized and valued within the church last week. We looked at the role of family leadership, and we looked at the role of family partnership. And the emphasis is on family. Paul uses the word brethren here in uh, this letter. He uses it a lot. Uh, In the New Testament uh, writings of the Apostle Paul, he uses uh, brethren as the term for the church members uh, over 60 times. Uh, Fully half of those are in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and that's because church is family right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We come together corporately. There's a lot of us. We just have a big family, local family of God, brothers and sisters. And in any family, you got to have leadership and you have to have partnership. You want uh, the, the leadership to be godly and God-oriented and, uh, and taking that role dutifully. And you want the family members to engage as participatory parts of the family, right? And so, The big idea of our message last week and continuing even today is that we all have roles to play in the family of God. Uh, The leader's role is to faithfully lead. The member's role is to partner with the leader in caring for the family. And as Paul identifies these roles, he's identifying specific ways to fulfill the roles as we minister to one another, and he then goes on to say, listen, because ministering to and encouraging one another is hard work, and it is, then what Paul does is he goes into key ways that we can guard our hearts, key ways that we can guard our hearts. Here's the deal. Um, Family is wonderful, and it's wonderfully hard work, too right? And, and I don't care what family you come from. I don't care how, how healthy or how good your family relationship is, how connected you are. Um, sometimes it's just difficult to be a member of a family, isn't it? Right? <laughs> and, and it, you know, it, it's been said about church. Church would be a great place if it wasn't for all the people, right? And sometimes we as a family can get on each other's nerves and so on. And so really, the big idea here is that, hey man, we're, at the end of the day, we're family. And we're supposed to be encouraging one another. We're supposed to be edifying one another, building one another up. And, and because it's hard work, we got to guard our hearts in the process. You know, have you ever found yourself, you, you get into a place, you just got to, you, you, you just, you got your heart's in the wrong place. Your, heart's in the mind, your heart and mind are in the wrong place. You're just kind of, you know, in a, in a bitter spot or you're, you look like you just ate a lemon or whatever it is. And so, you know, we just got to guard our heart. So, so this is what Paul is going through now. Key ways that we can guard our hearts. Now, um, we looked at last week two key ways um, that we guard our hearts as we minister to one another. Um, I'll pick it up in verse 14 just to, to bring you up to speed. Paul says, now we exhort you, brethren... Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. And here he starts talking about how you're going to be guarding your heart. He says, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And so two key ways to guard the heart that Paul touches on there. First is patience, and the second is purpose. Patience, being patient with one another and keeping the purpose before you. Hey, the whole goal is to build one another up, 
right? And, and so I had somebody come up to me after one of the services last week, and they, they said, man, I totally get it, that we got to work on being patient. And it can be so frustrating, you know, with, with, with some members of my family. And how, how can I grow in patience, Pastor Ted? And I told him, listen, I think one of the keys to patience is having a good memory. Because if you just take a good long look in the mirror and you have a good memory about how patient God has been with you, man, that helps you to be patient with other people. So we looked last week, patience and purpose, and we're going to continue today. Paul adds a third way that we guard our hearts. So number one, we guard our hearts with patience. Number two, we guard our hearts with purpose. Here's the third way. Paul says, we guard our hearts with praise. Verse 16, he says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so we're guarding our hearts with praise, and in these three verses, Paul touches on three important aspects or practices of praise. Three important practices of praise, rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving. Now these three distinct ways that we practice praise impact our outlook, it impacts our uplook, and it impacts our inlook. Let me expand on that. First of all, praising God starts with our outlook. Verse 16, Paul says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Notice he doesn't say rejoice only when times are good. He doesn't say rejoice only when you get the job. He doesn't say rejoice only when the doctor's report is good. No, he says, rejoice always. And that word rejoice, literally in the Greek, it means to be cheerful. It means to be calmly happy. It means to be glad. And the word itself is a verb which implies action, right? Rejoicing uh, is, is something that we put feet on, right? And it's written in the imperative, which means, hey, it's vitally important. Here's why. Rejoicing is a state of mind that focuses on the bigger picture and it informs how we then function. You see, the bigger picture is this, that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have come to the place where you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, that he died on the cross for your sins in your place, that he offers to you the free gift of salvation if you will believe and confess that he is the Christ and surrender your life to him. If that's where you are, then you have the hope and the promise of things greater than this world. Paul said this to the Colossians. He said, if then you were raised with Christ. And the way that's written in the Greek isn't if then maybe you are, maybe you aren't. It's if then and you are. You've been raised with Christ. Since is the idea. Since you've been raised with Christ, then what are we to do? Seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then Paul goes on to, in this letter to the Colossians to talk about, hey, there's things that you need to put to death. There's things that you need to put off. There's things that you need to put on. Put off things like anger and sexual sin and lying. Put on things like love and mercy and humility and kindness and patience. And he says, you know, that you, we got to press on in prayer and a thankful attitude. Why? 
Because you're living with a focus on the future. You're living with the hope of glorification, which is God's promise to every last one of us, that there's a day coming when we're going to be glorified together with Jesus Christ. And then you're living committed to edification, to building yourself up, building others up in the body. And, and this attitude of expectation and edification, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago in our text here, is how we're to live. And when you choose to praise God in your outlook, what it does is it takes your, minds off, your mind off of the circumstances which change, and it puts it on God who never changes. David Guzik said this in his commentary, the Christian can rejoice always because their joy isn't based in circumstances, but in God. Circumstances change, but God doesn't. In fact, listen, not only do your circumstances change, and we know that, we live, you know, hey, how you doing? I'm okay under the circumstances. And people are, well, what are you doing under those? You know, but we know that we go through various circumstances and that they, they threaten to bring us down. But here's the thing. Sometimes our circumstances didn't just randomly happen. Sometimes our circumstances have been ordained by God to happen. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes we're in bad circumstances because of sin. Let's just acknowledge that. Sometimes things happen in your life because you've been disobedient to the Lord and you go through different circumstances and, you know, you've, you've just walked in a direction that has brought pain and destruction. Here's the good news. That it, no matter, it's been said, no matter how far you walk away from God, that there's only one step to come back. It's just a step of turning to and repentance and allowing God to minister to you. So circumstances sometimes are a result of, of just our own sinfulness. But sometimes, listen, circumstances are allowed, maybe even ordained by God to do a work in our heart. We were recently going through Luke chapter uh, 22. And you'll recall that there in chapter 22, the Lord speaking to Peter told him, Hey, Peter, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. And, and, and what we saw was, you know, for wheat, it has to be processed because it's got a hard shell which you can't digest, which isn't good to feed you and nourish your body. And so what happens, it has to happen is that wheat, in order for it to be ingested and to be a benefit to your body, it first has to be crushed to break that harder outer shell, and then it has to be shaken and tossed so that the process of, of shaking and tossing this weed up into the air, the wind would hit and buffet the seed, and that the chaff, which is the word for that, that, that worthless part of the wheat, would be blown away. And the thing is, is that God wants to crush us sometimes, and wants to allow us to be buffeted so that the chaff in our life would be separated from that which is valuable, right? And so P Peter in, in talking to Jesus, Jesus is telling him, hey, listen, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to crush you and thrash you around and, and buffet you. <coughs> and Jesus doesn't say, <coughs> he, he's asked for you to sift you like wheat, but I said no. No, he said, and when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. See, the implication is, hey, he's asked for you. And I said, okay. I said, okay. And so the thing is, is that we need to understand that for us, when we are in the, the exhortation, receiving the exhortation here to rejoice 
always, it's regardless of the circumstance that we are in. Um, James chapter 1 tells us this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I like what Charles Spurgeon said in regards to our text here in 1 Thessalonians 5. He said, turn this book over and see if there is any precept that the Lord has given you in which he has said, groan in the Lord always. Again, I say groan. He says, you may groan if you like. You have Christian liberty for that. But at the same time, do believe that you have larger liberty to rejoice for so it is put before you. Well, the second thing Paul says is that praising God uh, then moves to our uplook. It moves to our uplook. Here's what he says in verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, the idea is not that prayer is to be constantly occurring. The idea is that prayer is to be constantly recurring in your life. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, we are to keep the receiver off the hook and to be in touch with God so that our prayer is part of a long conversation that's not broken. Let me bring that into the 21st century. Leaving a receiver off the hook doesn't apply anymore. But my, my wife and my daughters are a great example of this long conversation. Uh, they will FaceTime each other for hours on end. And I'll go in and like, you know, Brenda's in the middle of doing something and Caitlin, you know, is putting on her makeup or whatever. And they're just, they're just there. I'm like, you're not even looking at each other. Why, are you, why, are you, why do you have FaceTime? Why don't you like call on the phone? They look at me like I'm an idiot. They're like, we're talking, you know, and just for hours. And they'll, they'll talk. Uh, Megan, same thing. She's dealing with her kids and whatever's going on. She's driving, you know, we're driving. Brenda, you know, look at her phone. Man, you've been talking to her for two and a half hours, man. Just this long conversation, this ongoing conversation. Text messaging. We have, we have a family group text, and it's titled uh, Family No In-Laws. Um, not because we've excluded the in-laws purposefully. We actually included Zach and we included Jess, but they got sick of, we're talking all the time. And they're like, my phone's blowing up. Take me off of this group text, right? And my kids, they just, they're just, it's like, don't you guys have anything else to do? Like, we're just constantly text going back and forth, sending pictures, sending gifts, all these, all these crazy things. Inevitably, I'm in a, a meeting, and my phone's blowing up. Like, ding, ding, and it's my kids. And I'll go, hey, working here, or hey, I'm trying to sleep here, and then, and then it's on. Like, ding, 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 you know. They're just... But it's just constantly recurring connection. That's the idea. The idea is we have an ongoing conversation with God. And here's the implication when, it, when it's, hey, this, this connectivity stays connected, that, there, that, it's, that it's constantly recurring. The idea is that, hey, the place of prayer doesn't matter. The, the particular time of prayer doesn't matter. You don't have to pray out loud in a particular way. You, you don't have to assume a certain posture when you pray. You just need to stay connected and just just ongoing conversation. That's the attitude. That's the idea. Think about uh, Peter when, when he was walking on water, 
you know, Jesus comes walking out and the wind and the waves are going and they're all freaking out and they think they've seen a ghost. Peter goes, you know, somebody's like, I, I think it's the Lord. And he says, Lord, if that's you, bid that I should come to you. And Jesus is like, hey, water's great, come on out, you know. And so Peter's walking on the water, but the text says he saw the wind and the waves, got a little overwhelmed, a little unbelieving, and he began to sink. And when Peter began to sink, what did he do? He just said, save me, Lord. He just cried out, Lord, save me. Now, the Lord didn't say, oh, you, you didn't address that prayer properly. You know, oh, Jesus, thou merciful, heavenly, you know. No. What did Jesus do? He cried out and he saved him. That's the attitude. That's the idea of, of praying without ceasing, just staying connected in that way, bringing our concerns and our requests to the Lord, listening for his response. See, Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 that men should always pray and not lose heart. Why? Because when we pray, we admit our need for God and our total dependence on Him. And keep in mind the context here. Because the whole backdrop of this whole section is how you can guard your heart and your mind as you're just seeking to be a good brother and sister in Christ and build other people up. And the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes, and you know this with your own kids and your own family, sometimes you, you can lose your heart a little bit. You can lose your mind a lot with your kids right? And they just know every button to push. They just know how to get right under your skin. And, and man, we got to guard that. We got to guard our hearts and our minds so that we can be building one another up and not tearing each other down. And so praying without ceasing is a part of the component of how we guard our hearts. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, it's not intended to be a means where we get what we want, but listen, the idea, it's a means by which we enable God to give us what he wants. And you go, well, God, God's all-powerful. Like, how can you enable him to do anything? He doesn't need you to enable him. Yes, he does, in the sense that it's a surrender and it's an alignment. It's an alignment. Think about that. Because what happens is, relationally, we can get out of alignment. And so if we're praying without ceasing, it allows me to go, I got a bad attitude, I'm in a wrong place, my heart and mind aren't, aren't really synced up with you. Why? Because I'm so frustrated with this guy right now, I'm about to lose my salvation. You know, I'm, I'm about to lose it. And, and uh, you can't lose your salvation, it's just a, a, a figure of speech. Um, but you get the idea, right? So it's, 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 it's an up look. It, it, it's a, it's a just maintaining the connection with the Lord. I like what Billy Graham said. He said, prayer is the rope that pulls God and man together, but it doesn't pull God down to us. Rather, it pulls us up to him, right? That's the attitude. That's the idea. So praising God. Praising God is our outlook of rejoicing. It's our uplook in prayer. And thirdly, praising God then moves to our inlook. Paul says, notice it, in everything, verse 18, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything, give thanks. Now, understand, Paul's not saying we give thanks for everything. There's a very key word. He says, in everything, you give thanks. In every circumstance, in every season. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Warren Wiersbe describes God's sovereignty this way. He said, God's sovereignty is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. 
right? And what we do is when we go through the various experiences that we have in life, the various circumstances that we have in life, look, it's not a result of just some blind fate or chance, right? God's in the middle of what's going on. And so we can give thanks in the midst of the circumstance, knowing that God has promised he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. Right? Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all things are good. No, God works all things together for the good. Now, I was going to have you turn there. I won't have you turn for time's sake, but I'll just tell you the story. It's 1 Samuel 17, and it's a story everybody knows. It's the story of David and Goliath. And what happens is that Goliath is this giant, stands over eight feet tall. He's menacing. He wants to, you know, have Israel, the troops there, aligned for battle. He says, <coughs> pick a man, send him out, let's fight. Mano a mano, let's man to man, let's just have this fight. Let's just call it, you know, and whoever wins, winner takes all kind of thing. Well, they're all freaking out. They're all quaking in their boots. No, nobody in the Israeli army wants to fight. David shows up on the scene. He's not even there to fight. He's just bringing supplies to his brothers. Sees he sees Goliath. He's like, what is this guy doing? He's blaspheming God. Let me at him. I'll take him out. And everybody scoffs at David. His brother's making fun of him. And, oh, look at you. You just came here to see the battle. And David rightly could have said, what battle? You guys are all afraid. You're, you're cowering. But, no, they're just making fun of him. Saul gets word, the king, gets word that David is saying, let me at him. I'll fight him. And Saul goes, dude, you're, you're just a kid. Like, this guy's been killing people since he was a kid. You're just a kid. Like, you can't take this guy. And David does something really critically important. David exercises a component of praise, right? And what, what he's doing here is David has the exercise of this, command, this commandment in everything give thanks. David goes, hey, look, this guy, he's, he's blaspheming God. And here's the deal. I've gone through some trials and some, some hardships where God's proven himself faithful. I've got things in my past that I'm thankful for. When I was a boy, I tended my father's sheep, and, and a lion or a bear came and attacked. I fought and I killed them, and, and this Philistine, he's just going to be just like the lion or the bear. I'm going to take him out. I'm going to put him out of my misery. You know, and Saul's like, knock yourself out, dude, go, right? And we know the story. He takes him out. Here's the deal. Where did, where did David's strength come from? It came from David being in a place where he had this, this, this proper inlook of what do I have to be thankful for? What do I have to, to remember with thanksgiving? I'll tell you what I have. God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. And, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you here this morning you're going through, maybe you got a Goliath sort of situation that you're dealing with and you're thinking, how on earth can I respond to this? How, how can I be, have faith in this, this time and in this season? And I would say, listen, just with thanksgiving, remember how God's been faithful to you. Remember how he's taken care of you. Now, we hear the story of David and Goliath. Hey, he fought a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Now, I, here, we don't have a lot of experience with lion and bears, but here's what I do know. Not too long ago, a few weeks ago, I went down with my grandkids to the zoo, San Diego Zoo, and we got pretty close to like a mountain lion, 
And, and I'm like, you know, yeah, there's a glass part. He ain't coming through. There's a chain and all that. He ain't coming through. But imagine if you're like there with him, you know. Imagine if, if you're, you know, and then all of a sudden you have to fight. And, and, you know, and David could say with Thanksgiving, hey, this is what I've been through. His past wilderness experience informed his present trial and wilderness journey that he was in. And so key ways to guard our hearts as we minister to one another. We guard our hearts with patience. We guard our hearts with purpose. We guard our hearts with praise, focusing on our outlook and on our uplook and in our inlook. And Paul goes on and says, look, we guard our hearts with specific practices. Notice verses 19 through 22. Here's what he says. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, Paul lists here th three of these practices in the negative, and he lists two of the practices in the positive. In the positive sense, he says, test all things and hold fast to what is good. In the negative sense, he says, abstain from every form of evil, do not despise prophecies, and he says, do not quench the Spirit. That word quench in verse 19 what it has in view is fire. The picture is when a fire is quenched, when it is, when it is subdued, when it is put out. You quench a fire. And what happens here is that the Holy Spirit is what in, what's in view here, right? He says, do not quench the Spirit. The, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit we see in the New Testament, it's depicted in, in, in fire, Right? You see on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, how did he manifest himself? He manifested himself as tongues of fire on the, on the heads of the apostles. Right? And, and we see throughout the New Testament these manifestations of the Spirit and articulated in the sense of a, of a burning fire. Jesus in John 5, he was talking about John the Baptist, and he said that John was a lamp that burned and that gave light. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, he told Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Now that phrase, fan into flame, that Paul uses, speaking of the Holy Spirit, it means literally to kindle afresh. It means to keep in full flame. Keep this flame burning, don't quench this flame. Years ago, I, I bought a Sea-Doo from a friend of mine, and it had some title issues, and I thought I had worked through all the title issues on the Sea-Doo, and so we went down to Mission Bay, and I launched it there at the, at the boat ramp, and, you know, my kids are with me, and some friends of ours are with us, and I'm riding the Sea-Doo around Mission Bay, and uh, all of a sudden, I didn't realize as I'm coming back to the shore, I'm being followed by the, the Harbor Patrol. And so Harbor Patrol pulls up, and the guy wades up on the beach, and there I am, and he points out that I've, I've got a registration issue with the Sea-Doo. And I, I explained to him, hey, man, I, 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 reg I bought it, just I thought I'd taken care of everything. And he said, yeah, I can see that, but you didn't put the sticker on the hole. I said, well, I don't have the sticker yet. And he said, exactly, I'm going to have to write you a citation. I'm like, oh, man, come on. So I'm, I'm grabbing at straws here. I'm thinking in my mind. At the time, I, I, I worked as a paramedic firefighter for the fire department. So, so I said to him, hey, would it matter to you that I'm a paramedic firefighter? I'm just looking to get, you know, 
Have him bro me out a little bit, a little professional courtesy, man. Come on. <clears throat> and so the guy looks at me like I'm lying. I mean, I'm in my bathing suit. I, I don't have my badge on me or anything like that. And uh, he says, what's the fire triangle? I said, heat, fuel, and oxygen. He goes, all right, I'll let you go. It's cool, right? <laughs> Gives me some professional courtesy. So he leaves. My friend looks at me. He's like, what is the fire triangle? Like, I need to know. I, I want to know how I can get out of my... <laughs> Tell me about the fire triangle. And I said, well, it's what I said. It's heat, fuel, and oxygen. He's like, I, I don't get it. I go, look, every fire, when you've got a fire burning, it needs three components, and they all have to be present, and there has to be a chain reaction. You have to have heat, you have to have fuel, you have to have oxygen. And if you want to put a fire out, you, you, you remove one of those components. So, you know, we put water on a fire. Why? Because it takes the heat away, right? So you, so you put the water on it, and it extinguishes the fire. Or one of the other things you could do if something's burning, you can just take the, the thing that's burning and remove the, the fuel out, uh, away from the, the, the fire, and, and that'll put it out. Or you remove the oxygen, you know, uh, you, you'll see uh, aircraft firefighters, and they got, you know, chemicals that are burning. They, they put foam out, AFFF, aqueous film-forming foam. Why do they put it out there? Because it blankets it, and it cuts off the oxygen, and it extinguishes the fire. See, so it's, it's heat, fuel, and, and oxygen. And uh, my, my, my friend was unimpressed. But at any rate, the, the point here is that what Paul is saying, hey, don't put out the fire, right? Don't quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and really, literally stop putting out the Spirit's fire is what he's saying. See, the thing is, is that we can extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in, in many ways. We can, we can ignore the Holy Spirit. We cannot tend to, to keep the fire burning. You know, when you, when you light a campfire, you have to tend to it to keep it roaring and keep it going. You have to add fuel to it. You have to make sure that, you know, there's, there's oxygen pathways to get to the fuel. All of these things. Make sure that the fuel, fuel isn't wet. You have to make sure it's not starved for fuel. The, 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 the fire of the Holy Spirit, right? You've got to feed that fire. See, the thing is, we're not to put out the Spirit's fire. We're to, to accelerate the Spirit's fire. And here's the thing. You can, you can not only extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. You, you, you can discourage other Christians. You can discourage your kids. You, you, you can set a bad example. Um, you, through peer pressure, can lead somebody away from doing what they should be doing. Some, hey, let's blow off church and not go to church kind of thing. And as well, you can stoke the fire of the Holy Spirit in other people. Brenda and I, this, this last Friday, we went to see a friend of ours, Pastor Jim Hesterly, preach a message. He was preaching at a pastor's conference. We wanted to go there and, 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 and be part of that and encourage him. And he was preaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in the context of his message, he was talking about how the Holy Spirit moves and operates and how we, you know, as pastors should, you know, be instructing our congregations about the gifts of the Spirit and about the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit. And he was talking about the exercise of the gift of tongues. And then people get weird about these kind of things. But listen, this is, this is a spiritual gift, and this is, this is uh, part of the way that, that, that God moves and works today. And the Bible has specific instructions. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14 had specific instructions about how you know, we're to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. 
And so Paul talks about the gift of tongues, how it's a prayer language and how it's given to us, you know, for, for, for that express purpose and how, you know, in our Sunday gatherings, we're not supposed to, you know, exercise the, you know, have people speaking out in tongues because unbelievers come in and they're like, you guys are, you, you're, you're weird, you know, and it just causes people to, you know, get, get all funny. But in a believer's meeting where, you know, somebody exercises the gift of tongues and if you have somebody who have, has the gift of interpretation and they they can, they can say, hey, you know, here's what God is saying. And when that happens decently in order, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a manifestation of the Spirit of God. And it's wonderful. So he's talking about all of this stuff. And my, my granddaughter leans over to my wife and she says, what's the gift of tongues? And so Brenda starts explaining to her what the gift of tongues is and how it's a prayer language. And, uh, and she says, would, would you like to see what it is? And, and Auburn said, yes. And so Brenda just very quietly, in an instructionary way, she, she spoke in tongues to, to, to Auburn. And immediately, Auburn started speaking in tongues. She's six years old. She's six years old. And her, her brother's sitting right next to her, and he says, do you understand what you're saying? And she goes, no, but God does. She got it. She knew what was going on. See, what, was Bre- what Brenda was doing at that moment, far from extinguishing the Spirit's fire, she is, is igniting the Spirit's fire. She's instructing, you know, her, her granddaughter in the ways of the Lord and, and helping her to realize and use the spiritual gift that God has given to her. And just a beautiful thing. And so the thing is, Paul says, hey, don't quench the Spirit. And then he says in verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Now that word prophecy, literally, it means the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. And really what's in view here is the word of God. And, and the, the idea is Paul gives this threefold exhortation. Notice again, verse 20, 21. He says, do not despise prophecies, test all things, and hold fast what is good. The attitude, the idea is don't despise the message of the Bible. Test the message of the Bible. And hold fast to the message of the Bible. And he says it in the negative. He says, do not despise the prophecies. Don't despise the word of God. That word despise, it's the Greek word exutheneo, and it means to not esteem or to make of no account. And the attitude and the idea is you don't esteem the word of God and you say that really doesn't have any account in, in what I'm dealing with or what I'm going through. We have an example of the use of that word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, Paul was, was talking to this Corinthian church, and he's basically calling them on the carpet because he's like, you guys are suing each other, taking each other to court, and you shouldn't be doing that. Here's what he says. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, don't you realize that we will judge angels, so you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. Basically, he's laying the, the thing. He's like, look, you, you're setting a bad example. Christians are supposed to get along. We're supposed to work things out. You're going to court. You're setting a really bad example. He says, if you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges? Exotheneo is the word. Why do you go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? Outside judges. Exotheneo. The idea is men that aren't esteemed, they make of no account. The idea is that the Corinthians were not esteeming God's word but rather they were esteeming the word of men who themselves did not esteem God's word. And Paul, in a play on words here, is saying, look, the judges themselves are not esteemed because their judgments are not based, 
in the Bible. And here's the deal. We do this too. The not esteeming of God's word. What happens sometimes in our lives is the Bible will say something that we don't like and sometimes we'll just reject it outright. We won't esteem it. Or we'll ignore it conveniently. Or sometimes we want to redefine it. You know, we'll have some people, sometimes from time to time, people come in for counseling, and, and you can always see them coming a mile away. They're looking to redefine what the word says. What they want is somebody in authority to say that they're the exception to the rule. They're going through something. We take them to God's word. And, you know, what we do here, I mean, we, we say counseling. It's, it, technically, it's not counseling. It's biblical discipleship. We're not licensed counselors. We take people to God's word. We say, look, here's what God's word says. This is the compass. We just point them to the true north and say, set your course by this. And so people will say, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm the exception. You know, they won't say it that way, but that's what they're saying. I'm the exception and hearing that and whatever. And if they can get uh, somebody in spiritual authority to say, oh, yeah, you're right. You are the exception. You don't have to obey that. That's what they're shopping for. And some people will leave here upset. Some people leave the church upset. And what do they do? They go shopping for another church that will say, yes, when the Bible says that, it really doesn't mean that. It means this. They want somebody to reinterpret it. And the Bible says that this is the way it is in the last days, that there are going to be people who have itching ears and they go shopping around for whoever's going to scratch them where they itch and tell them what they want to hear. And so, so the, the, the fact of the matter is sometimes we're like this with the Word of God. And I want you to keep the context, keep the backdrop. All in mind, what, what we're talking about here. Because the key is we're looking to guard our hearts as we seek to build one another up, as we seek to minister to one another. And the goal back in verse 15 is to always pursue what's good for everybody, right? And so Paul is simply saying here that we accomplish that through the specific practice of esteeming the word of God, not ignoring it, not despising it, of testing the Word of God, and there's a couple of ways that you test God's Word. First of all, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? And so what happens is God's Word tells you to do something, and you put it into practice, and you come to find out, wow, that, that, actually, that actually works. You know, uh, an example, sometimes, you know, the Bible says that uh, when we have a dispute with a brother, we're supposed to go to our brother and work it out, just the two of us. Well, our flesh doesn't want to do that. Our flesh would rather go talk about our brother to everybody but our brother, right? Because that feels so good and, and, it, and it's not as confrontational for me just to go behind his back and tell everybody else about, you know, how he's wronged me. But the Bible says, no. Why? Because God wants you to go to him, work it out just the two of you, because he's more interested in the relationship than what went wrong in the relationship. And, and he could care less about all that. He's just like, come on, guys, work it out. You know, it's just like you with your kids. You just want your kids to get along, man. I, 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 don't, I don't really care about what you're arguing over. I care about you guys. Like, you know, just get together and work this out. And so testing the word means that. It also means that when somebody's teaching, you don't just swallow everything that somebody says. You know, somebody, some of your kids, when they're growing up, I know a couple of my kids were this way. They just test the world with their mouth. It's like anything that they find on the ground, they just eat it, right? That's what some babies do. Well, testing means that, you know, the, when we're going to test the word, don't despise the prophecies, test all things. This means, hey, look, not everything that everybody teaches is good for you. And so you need to test it against the word of God and go, is that biblical? That's the idea here. And Paul says as well, holding fast 
to what is good. Holding fast to what is good. Why? Because we live in a world that the current wants to take you away from that which is good. You know, it's no different. You go down to the beach, you go out swimming, you come back up. Hey, somebody stole all my stuff. And then you realize, no, it's 100 yards down the beach that way. I just drifted. Why? Because that's what the world does. It causes you to drift. And so Paul is saying here, look, guard your hearts as you minister to each other. And the goal is to pursue what's good for one another. And you're going to accomplish that through specific practices. Esteeming the word, testing the word, holding fast to the word. That's what's in view here. This is how we guard our hearts. This is how we minister to one another. This is how we pursue what's good for everyone. Amen? We'll call it quits right there. I'll finish the book next week. But I want to close with three questions. As always, we'll put them on the screen. Don't stress out. They'll be up after the service as well if you don't get them all written down. Um, But here's, here's what I'd like. These questions are designed for you to take a walk with the message. And, uh, and really to cook on it. And so this week, I'd encourage you to take a walk with these questions in your community groups, spend time talking over these questions. Question number one, how do you struggle to praise God in your outlook, in your uplook, and in your inlook? What are some ways that you struggle in those particular areas? Second question, what are some practical ways that you can kindle afresh the Spirit's fire in your life? Practical ways. And the third question, in what specific ways, plural, does active participation in church family equip you to esteem the word, to test the word, and to hold fast to the word?